All right, good evening, everybody. Tonight we'll be in 2 Corinthians 3, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, and we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for your word and the opportunity to study again tonight. We pray that you give us ears to hear. Such an interesting section, Lord, as, uh, as Paul is uh, diminished by them and uh, not appreciated and, and doesn't think that he should have to write letters of commendation again, even though he started that church. And I just pray um, as we get closer to this leadership conference that's coming up this weekend and all the people that serve here and, and uh, take care of this flock and do the best they can and minister and, and uh, pour their hearts out. I pray that we're, well, fed tonight, encouraged, and I'm so thankful for us and um, thankful for what you've done here. In Jesus' name, amen. I am grateful that we are nothing like the Corinthian church in many, many ways. And as I go through this and I do my best to critique and try to figure out, you know, um, I just am very thankful for all of you and uh, what a blessing you are. As Paul is trying to write his second letter to them, this is actually his third letter. We've gone over that. But this is his second letter to them that's documented anyway. We don't really have the first. We have two and three here. Um, he desperately wants them to understand and return to their first love, um, where they started. It's a, it's a very dangerous thing to think you're going to graduate away from your first experience with Jesus Christ, your first moment when you were born again, that time when you realized that you needed a Savior more than anything in the world and, and that you were lost without him. That moment should be where we stay for our entire walk. We may mature in other areas. We may become uh, less of sinners, you know, um, more of servants. Um, those things should naturally take place in the believers. As we're conformed into the image of Jesus, but never getting away from that first love. And the Corinthian church had done that. They had grown past Paul, they thought. And so Paul has to write them and say, no, I'm not someone that you grow past. We grow together and you grow in the gospel, you know, in what I brought to you. We don't go past it. We don't grow up beyond it. Well, they thought they had. And of course, he got into trouble. They, they created for themselves a pecking order. When you do that, you're no longer on that same level playing field of saved by grace and you become someone who is, well, I'm level three or I'm level four servant kind of thing. Um, exactly doing what the disciples were doing as they followed Jesus around during his ministry. Always trying to figure out who was number one, number two, number three. Never really understanding. As Jesus wrapped the loincloth around himself and began to wash their feet, still they didn't quite get it. You know. Um, and so we see this in this epistle, in this, in this third chapter. He says, you're the living epistles, you know. You're the ones that people read. You're the ones that tell everybody about your walk, you know. How you act and how you live and what you say and what you do, those are the things that people pay attention to. Not what you, uh, not what you espouse to do, but what you actually do. So in verse 1 here, Paul has to write this. It's an uncomfortable exchange. Do we begin, we meaning Timothy and all the guys that came to you the first time, do we begin again to commend ourselves? 
Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? When we come to speak, when we come to share, when we come back to visit, you know, do I need a letter from somebody stating that I'm qualified, given the fact that we were the ones to start it, Paul would say, or Timothy would say, or any of the guys that were with Paul? Do we need a Or if we go to another church, do we need letters from you stating that we're qualified by you, you know? Um, and it's embarrassing for Paul to have to write something like that. I would be embarrassed if I was a Corinthian. They're supposed to be embarrassed. He's trying to embarrass them. That's the bottom line. You are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Which is, You see what he's done there. I don't know if you picked up on it, but he's like, if you think that we're not qualified because we don't have letters, you do know you're the letters that you should be reading. So the very fact that you think that I'm not qualified, Paul says, the letters that we would present to you are you and your heart. So you're saying that you're not good enough. You're not far enough. If we were reading you, Paul wouldn't be able to come. You see what he's saying there? Kind of turns it on him a little bit. It's a moment for them to think about. Now, wait a minute. We think we're the greatest. Well, then isn't Paul the greatest? Paul would say to them, well, no, we don't like you. But, but you know, they get caught. I'm seeing that a lot lately. Not in our church necessarily, but just in the world in general. People say one thing and they stand really firm on it. I saw a funny exchange down in Kansas City. They had a, a white privilege conference. And I thought it was an interesting exchange at this man had with the the goers, you know. He interviewed them when they came out and they said, Do you believe you have white privilege? Absolutely. And they're white people. You know, we, we have absolute we have white privilege. It's all over. Three different people said it. Do you think all white people are racist? Do you think oh, absolutely all white people, you know, self-deprecating, you know, that's always a safe place to be. Yes, I'm a horrible person. I'm a terrible person. And he says, Do you think it's wrong? to conclude that all people and judge them based off of their skin. Yes, you should never judge people based off of their skin color. Didn't you just, you know, put two and two together, you know, add it up. The Corinthian church doesn't feel like Paul is worthy to come speak at their church anymore. He's not really, you know, fine-tuned. He doesn't have the eloquence. He doesn't have the knowledge. He's not polished like the other guys. He says, we need more letters from you. We need to be, you know, proof that you're worthy. He says, no, you're the letter. You're the letter, you know. And that's important. I remember when we first... uh, we had kind of a revival, and I think probably in wartime, you always have a revival. Everybody, every soldier wants to get saved. We had a lot of baptisms. We were very excited about that, and it was a great thing to see guys coming to know the Lord and, and want to be baptized. Of course, they thought they were going to die, so it's probably a good time for them to do that, you know, when you're confronted with your mortality. But it was more than that, I think. It was more than just a, um, you know, a foxhole Jesus experience, you know. Um, I, there was some amazing things taking place in the Spirit, you know. Holy Spirit movement kind of stuff in people's lives. Changes were taking place. And uh, I got excited, and they were excited. And so I wrote to this T-shirt group from over there uh, called Living Epistles. And they, write, they make T-shirts. And I said, hey, we got something going on here. You guys don't have any extra shirts lying around. You could put, you know, send to us poor jarheads over here. You know, we don't have any money. We can't send you money. We don't have any money. There's no way to do it. We'd pay you when we got back or something. But we'd love some T-shirts, you know, that they have these great 
scriptures on them and all that. The, the famous one that you know Jesus is bench pressing the cross or something like that, and 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 all. And they sent us a huge box full of T-shirts, all different sizes and everything. Living epistles, they were called. And I thought, oh, and that was the first time I ever looked that scripture up and understood what it, what it meant. You are the living epistles. Their epistles are these, Corinthians, Romans, letters written by the apostles to the church. Basically. Those are epistles, right? Well, you're living epistles, Paul says, and so are you in this room. Every one of you is a living epistle. <coughs> And the world is reading you from cover to cover. And I know we use the phrase sometimes, um, you know, you're the only Bible that anybody's ever going to read. You know, some people are ever going to read. Well, and that's fine. They probably ought to pick up their Bible too and not just read you. But we'll talk. That's a different subject. But you are maybe their first experience with Jesus, with Christianity. And they watch you and they read you, you know. What is this thing? What has it done for you? Is it a, is it a club? You know, if church is a cruise ship, eh. Plenty of cruise ships out there that are a lot more fun, you know, to be honest with you. Or is it a battleship? You know, is it a battleship? And our epistles that we, you know, the, our, the writing of our lives is out there for everybody to, uh, to read. And that's what Paul's saying. You are the epistles, not on stone. We're not on tablets of stone, but on fleshy hearts. Um, you're our letter that we need. The only letter that we need. It's a, it's a beautiful little sentiment that he's trying to get across to them. It's loving the way he puts it. We're proud of you. I don't know why you're not proud of us, Paul would say. We're here writing this letter out of love because we care for you and we can see what's happening in your church. We want you to come back to your first love. And so he's not afraid to tell them the hard things. Verse 4. And we have such trust through Christ our, toward God not that we are sufficient of ourselves. We don't think that we're all that. To think of anything as being from ourselves. But our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers, servants of the new covenant. Not with the letter, but with the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We're different kind of ministers, servants of a new covenant, not the old covenant. Of course, the problem was, and we've gone over this, was there were Judaizers in this group. They had come in after Paul had started the church, and they began to teach you have to be, uh, you know, you have to be circumcised as well, and you need to follow the covenant, the law, the old law, and, and also the new, and, and all. And, and Paul says, "Well, we're not those ministers. God's called us to be something else, ministers of the new covenant, not the old covenant." So I have to go through and have to teach that tonight. I know it's Wednesday night. And I know you've had a long day, and I know many of you might want to nod off. And I understand you can listen to this later on if you do. Um, but there's several cross-references. We have to get this doctrine down. We really have to understand what this is. Old covenant, new covenant. What is that? Well, they're old promises or old relationships with God versus a new relationship with God. Old Testament, New Testament. That's the break for the old covenant and new covenant. It's the same thing. You can, you can exchange those words if you wanted to. What is the old covenant? The old covenant was a relationship with God based upon a sacrificial system. If you sinned, if you did something wrong, according to God's word, then you had to give up a lamb or, or a goat or something like that to cover over, temporarily cover over your sin. And that was the relationship we had. But it was never going to completely take away your sin. It was only meant to temporarily cover it. And there was a problem with that because the priest would constantly have to give sacrifices every year for the sins. Well, the new covenant's different. So let me go through some verses. Jeremiah foretells the moment when it's all going to switch from an old covenant to a new covenant. It's Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. 
Jeremiah the prophet says from God to the nation of Israel, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's something they'd never heard before. The Old Covenant was something that they were a a constant reminder of their sin. The the Ten Commandments weren't a blessing. They weren't a blessing. They were a blessing in the sense that they were truth from God, but they're also an indictment against everybody who read them. That's the point. To read the law, to read the Ten Commandments, was to pronounce guilt upon yourself. So to read that was to say, I don't match up. I don't line up. What do I do? Hmm. The Ten Commandments were always meant to point people to a permanent Savior, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the new covenant. And so under this old covenant, there was a constant place of guilt, a constant place of shame, a constant place of inadequacy, you see. And so Jeremiah says there's going to come a new covenant at one point, a new promise, a new deal, a new relationship with God, which won't be based on this sacrificial system. It'll be based upon the sacrifice that this sacrificial system points to, Jesus Christ, once for all. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. That's the Ten, that's the ten Commandments for you. That's the wonderful news you got to hear when you go to synagogue every single Saturday, you know, was that. Nobody's good. Nobody's going to make it. You're all in trouble. Have a nice week, you know, kind of thing. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongue, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. Stopped from what? Boasting in their greatness. Boasting in their righteousness. The law was meant to keep everybody quiet about their goodness. Because God says you don't match up. And let me tell you how you don't match up. It isn't that I don't like you or love you or I don't want you to feel positive. It's that I want you to stop talking about your greatness of yourself because you're not. And I want you to seek out that which is great, which is me and my deliverance that I'm bringing to you. I want you to switch gears. You have to be brought low so that you can be built up. God doesn't want to leave us low. He doesn't want to leave us defeated. He doesn't want us to come to church every time saying, well, that was great, you know, and we beat ourselves all the way home. I don't want that, but I do want you to, we've got to start there so I can build you up in me. A beautiful temple that I can dwell in. The law is there to stop mouths. And that all the world may become guilty before God. 
Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight, in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law is. That's what the old covenant is. That's what it was meant to do. David understood that. David understood the law better than everybody, almost anybody, you know. And when he discussed things with the Lord about his sin and his shortcomings, his, his, I know that you, the blood of bulls and goats is not what you're talking about or what you need. I know that it's a broken and contrite heart. And that's what the law was meant to bring, a broken and contrite heart to people. And so David brought that before the Lord. That was his sacrifice to God. He probably did follow the law and did the sacrifices necessary, but he knew that that wasn't what God wanted from him. He didn't want him to say, well, here's my, here's my Friday night sins paid on Saturday. See you next week, God. I, he wants a broken, contrite heart so that Friday night sins don't happen anymore. And David knew that. Now, Hebrews, which is the greatest commentary on the Old Testament, if you ever wanted to read it and understand it, explains this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. Can't be any more clear than that. The sacrifices of the Old Testament never made anybody perfect enough to come and get into heaven, ever. It's not, it doesn't do it. In fact, when those people died, they went, and we've read this in Luke 16, to the lower parts of the earth. They would be in Abraham's bosom, but not in heaven. Paradise was down. That's where they waited and when Christ, the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world, descended into hell, led captivity, Abraham's bosom, captive, and took them into heaven, but only because of his sacrifice. Their sacrificial system of the Old Testament, of the Old Law, of the Old Covenant, got them there, but not there. Only Jesus could bring them all the way. Only Jesus could do that. He says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, skip forward to verses 11 through 18. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, capital M, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, quoting Jeremiah, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. That's that quote from Jeremiah. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. It's done. There's no reminder of our sins. It's paid for. It's completely taken care of. Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 15. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own son or with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. I know that's a lot for a Wednesday night. I know. But you get it, I hope. We have to understand this, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, we don't throw away the old covenant. The old covenant explains and magnifies why we need the new covenant. There's nothing wrong with the old covenant. The old covenant was great, except for us. We didn't keep our part. I'll be your God if you'll be my people. Well, we, didn't, we weren't his people. They weren't his people. And there lies the problem. Hebrews 4, 16, my last cross-reference for this section. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, the one sacrifice of Christ, the Lamb, not all the lambs, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the new covenant, now we can all go to the Holy of Holies Anytime we need grace and mercy, there is no priest in front of us except for Christ, and we've gone through him. That's what baptism, we pass through, and we're with him, and we come to that throne. We can receive grace and mercy every time. There is no more temple. There are no more sacrifices. The Temple Institute's so excited about getting the red heifers. They're going to build the third temple. One day, the third temple. Oy, oy vey, the third temple, you know. And we're going to get our red heifers and we're going to sanctify the third temple. And we're going to get the priests. And we figured out through DNA who was of the tribe of Levi. And, and we can do it. And we can get everybody in there. And we're going to get the garments made. And we're going to get the, the, the temple built again. And we're going to start the sacrificial system all over again. What a waste of time. That's a complete waste of time. It's nothing to be excited about except for the fact that, yeah, one day the Antichrist, three and a half years into it, is going to sit on that throne that you got so excited about. And he's going to claim himself to be God. And you're going to realize at that point, oh, Jesus was our Messiah. And they will come to him. It's the only exciting thing about this third temple. But they are still waiting. They have gone centuries without offering any sacrifices because there is no temple. They are still under the old covenant. And they have not done any blood, bulls of goats or, or anything. Nothing's happening the guilt just keeps piling on and there is no release from that guilt because there isn't because they've rejected the lamb they're still hoping for that sacrificial system but when Jesus says when i leave i'm leaving my temple empty we get all that we understand what's happening there he says no i'm shutting it down jesus says not one stone's going to be left on top of the other when i'm done we don't need it anymore i'm the lamb of god I tabernacled amongst you. Read John 1. I tabernacled amongst you. I'm the tabernacle, not made with hands. I'm, I'm everything that that all pointed to. I am the substance that casts that shadow. We get it? It's a beautiful thing. To want to go back to that, to go back to these things or to add that, Paul is, he's not happy. I have brought you to the new covenant. I have brought you to the one that, that was all talking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. And these guys come in and say, yeah, yeah, first covenant's great, but we still need the old covenant blended all together. 
No, 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 no. It's done. It's over with. It's so important we understand that as believers. Now, we don't have that Hebrew background, most of us, you know? We were never in that old covenant. We don't have that hanging on to us. We're like, I don't even know what the old covenant is. And that's wonderful. We just jumped right into the new covenant. All these Gentiles were like, yay, the new covenant, the new believing in Jesus. They didn't even know there was an old one. It's the only covenant they've ever known. That's why Paul was so mad at the Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Who came in and told you that you needed more than what I brought to you? Jesus Christ and him crucified. But here you are. Who's bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians. You're being foolish. When they sat before the council in Jerusalem, full of Judaizers there, full of people that were trying to blend the old and the new back in Jerusalem. And they said, no, 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 no. The Gentiles don't need to become like us. We need to become like them. That was a big thing for them. And James got it. He says, yeah, I can see that. I think they understood that. We've got to stay there. The world is full of Judaizers that will come in and try to steal your joy, steal your freedom, steal your liberty that you have in Christ. It's a very dangerous thing to even entertain those people. You are as saved as you can be in Jesus Christ. You can't do any better than him. And to think that we can accessorize the robe of righteousness that Christ has given us with a belt of Judaism or a, a crown of something from Judaism cannot. You can't, can't make it any better. And just Paul wants them to rest in that. Guys, rest. Find that rest. The letter kills and the spirit gives life. Now, some take that to mean the letter, the Bible. That's why we don't mess around with the Bible. We're just all spirit-filled. We clap our hands and we dance around and we sing songs and we speak in tongues and we do all these things and we never study the scriptures because the, the letter kills and the spirit gives life. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. This is the sword of the spirit. This has never never brought death. It only brings life. What brings death is the law on purpose. And what he's saying is the Spirit brings life. When you have the Spirit of Christ in you and his law is written on your hearts, and you know now, I don't have to read it in a park. I don't need to see two stone tablets in the park to figure out that I'm a guilty sinner that needs Jesus Christ. I know that, and everybody in the world knows that, that conviction. The Holy Spirit has come into the world to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's doing that. Whether they ever read a stone tablet or not, whether they ever see anything anywhere, it's there now. They can't escape it. You can try to remove God as much as you want to, but the Holy Spirit is still ministering and serving in this world. Verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? You know the story. Moses goes up on top. The mountain gets the ten tablets, which he's talking about here, the written on stone, and he came down, and he was glowing so much that they said, please, you got to cover yourself. It's too much. So he veiled himself so that they could even talk with him because he was so bright. If you thought that was glorious, how much more the glorious of the Spirit, you know? That shining through you. The Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, is to be shining out of us in every every way. It's to be hard to look at sometimes, you know? Some people tell you to cover it. Veil yourself. Tone it down or whatever. Isn't that what the world does? 
No more crosses at the workplace. I don't want to see any more, you know, platitudes about Jesus Christ or scripture verses anywhere. I wanted to put a veil on it. Yeah. And that's just the that's just the that's just the physical stuff that we do to express ourselves. They can't change your joy though, can they? They can't diminish your love. The fruit of the Spirit should be shining out of us, gentle, long-suffering, patient, kind. You know, why don't you get upset? Mm-hmm. That's their way of saying, veil yourself. It's beautiful. So this is supposed to be better, obviously, the new covenant. This relationship with Jesus is amazing. I don't know what it was like on Friday before they went to you know, or Saturday before they went to synagogue. I don't know what it looked like. Was it, did they always wear black? Were they always in mourning, you know? Was it always a depressing time to go and sit and listen and, and, and understand? And, and, and now we come to church and we're praising the Lord, singing at the top of our lungs, hopefully, raising hands to the Lord, thanking Him for the freedom that we have. The ministry of the Spirit's far more glorious. Verse 9, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory which is what the law brings, condemnation. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Passing away. Hebrews really hits on that. You really need to go through that book. It's almost... It's almost hard to read the, the emphasis that I believe the writer of Hebrews places on putting that old covenant away. It's passed away. Its time is over. There is no, there is nothing. It's, it's an old contract. I've been in negotiations this week with several people on houses. It's a very interesting thing. And it's hard to keep track of in my head when you do more than one. It's one thing if you're doing one house, but when you're doing multiple houses with four or five different buyers and sellers and you're trying to keep everything straight, who's counter-offering this and who's doing this and who's doing that, it gets a little squirrely sometimes in my mind and I got to sit down and put it all out there so I can see what's happening. Now, wait, what contract are we under? Now, wait, you know, that was the first one, but they've countered over here, but then we countered back to that counter and we've done, and this is a, this is a, this is an inspection resolution, which t- trumps the, you know, there's trump cards on these things and you better get it they're stacked in an order the right way. We've only got two in the scriptures. Thank goodness. I've got an old covenant. You get it? We've got a new covenant. This one is worthless. It doesn't do anything anymore. It's not valid. There ain't, a, there ain't a courtroom in this world that can enforce this contract because the new contract is in force. This is it. The entire world needs to submit to this new covenant, this new contract. You're either with Jesus or you're not. He's either paid for your sins or he hasn't. There is no counteroffer and there is no old covenant to go back to. God has made this void. I kind of think you're getting more clear than that, right? Paul is desperate for these folks to understand that you guys are still trying to enforce this old covenant, and you can't. Verse 12, therefore, since we have such hope, good hope, we use great boldness in speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, oh boy, read, this is huge. 
Tune in. But if their minds were blinded, for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. So they read the Old Testament. I mean, I have been to Israel. And if you've ever been to Israel and you're on the bus, that's, that's what everybody does in the bus because none of the guides are saved. None of them know Jesus. They know Israel backwards and forwards, but none of them are saved. And so that's your mission. We're going to get this guy saved. Do you know how many buses he's gone through in his life? Do you know how many opportunities he's had to receive Christ? I mean, that's the goal of every, There's 56 people on the bus, and we're all talking, hey, isn't that an interesting co-winky-dink, you know, that the Bible says this, and here we are, that. He goes, yes, that's very interesting. And he just gives you the idea that he's thinking about Jesus. He's not. They've been down that road. There's a blindness. There's a veil over them. They hear the same thing over and over. They hear the same thing we hear. They read the same thing we read, but they do not see what we see. There's a veil over them because that gets removed in Christ. This next verse is very important. The very next one. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Isn't that amazing? To me, that is. I can't see the Old Testament and see Christ in it until I come to Christ. And he takes that veil away. And then I read the Old Testament, I'm like, my goodness, it's from Genesis all the way through the Old Testament. Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ. There's a picture of Christ. There's Joseph. There, oh, there's, oh, there's old Abraham and, and Isaac going to the top of the hill. That's the same hill over here. And all of a sudden it comes alive. There's Jesus. He's everywhere. I can't stop seeing him in it because the veil is taken away. Paul's trying to say to them, you guys know this. The veil's been taken away. You've come to Christ. You saw this stuff. Why are you putting the veil over again? Why are you choosing to be blinded again? Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, behold as in a mirror or glass, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. You have the opportunity for the first time, they say, and what Paul's trying to say, to not have a veil, to look at God in the face and allow him to change you from the inside out. No one has seen the face of God and lived. But here you stand looking at God and he's conforming you. You're getting brighter and brighter and brighter. And for some reason, these Judaizers say, "Uh -uh, uh -uh, uh -uh," put a veil in front of that. They're stitching together. They're sewing back together the veil that was ripped from top to bottom. Paul says that blue veil that kept you in the holy place and kept you from going into the holy, holy place that was ripped at the, at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ from top to bottom, those guys are mending it. They're putting it back so that you can't come to the holy of holies and now you have to go through someone else and do this end run or find some other sacrifice. He's saying, It couldn't be more simple. The veil was ripped from top to bottom, never meant to be put back together again, and now you can actually see the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat of God, and you can boldly come to that throne anytime you need it. Paul says, why are you going back? Why are you stitching that back up again? 
Does he love these people or what? To take the time to say, put your thread down and your needle and quit putting that veil back together again. As a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I cannot do any better than the first day I met Jesus. I have as much access to him now as I did then. There is no greater access than going through Jesus Christ. I can't better that. But people will tell you that, and I tell you why they tell you that. Because they want to be in your life. They want to be in the way. They want to be the ones that you have to go through. You got to go to this church. You got to read our version. They'll do that over and over again to you. Because they want to steal that from you. He says, no, there is liberty in Jesus. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, I enjoy you people. And I enjoy fellowshipping with you and serving alongside of you and worshiping God with you. But if I was alone on a desert island, my relationship with God would be 100%. This is a bonus that we do here. We're called to this. Personal relationships are beautiful. And Paul says, get back to that. Get back to that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's heart, his love for you, and for them. To write something like this is uncomfortable. To bring people to and put a mirror in front of their face like this is uncomfortable, but it's so necessary. So we thank you for Paul, and we pray that we would be like him. Fully committed, madly in love, resolved to stay, to be close, and to not try to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to your gospel. It is good news as it is, and it can't improve with anything we could bring to it. So we thank you for the salvation that we have in your son, Jesus. We accept that. We receive that. Again, we know as born-again believers that we are as close to you as we can ever be, and we are being changed, and we're so thankful for that. As you write your name on our hearts, and you're changing us every single day as we walk with you and stay consistently with you, Abiding in you, Lord, we are changed. We're thankful for that growth. Sometimes it's slow, sometimes it's fast, but we're thankful for any kind of growth that we have, Lord. Lord, help us to recognize a Judaizer, someone who would want to bring us under a different covenant other than the covenant that we have with you already, this beautiful new covenant. Help us to recognize it. Sometimes we don't recognize it. Seems like they're well-meaning. Seems like they have a heart for us. Seems like they want to do something. But they, well, they bring something other than the, the pure gospel. We want to stay right there, Lord. Bless these people as they go tonight. I pray that you would burn this on our hearts, etch it on our hearts, that we might be able to articulate this to, to those who are stuck or brought back to that old covenant or a blended of it. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need prayer before you go tonight, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.